Welcome back to the show. My guests in this segment are Tina Rivers-Ryan and Paul Van Oos, co-curators of the brand new installation at UC Irvine's Beale Center entitled Difference Machines, Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art. Trying to put this lovely space on the map for locals and patrons well beyond. This is such a gem celebrating now with the 20 year anniversary here at UC Irvine to introduce my co-curator guest, Tina Rivers-Ryan, is currently a curator with the Buffalo AKG Art Museum, formerly known as the Albright Knox Art Gallery. Before joining the AKG, she was a curatorial research assistant in the Department of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art New York. Her expertise is in the field of media art, including video, digital, and internet art. Her exhibitions at the AKG include, with Paul Venus, the 2021's Difference Machines, Technology and Identity Contemporary Art, which received a 2022 award for excellence from the Association of Art Museum Curators and 2020's Peer to Peer, which was named to Hyperallergics list of the top 50 exhibitions of 2020. Her next major exhibition, Electric Op, will open at the AKG in the fall of 2024. Outside the museum, she regularly writes for Art Forum and other magazines, as well as for exhibition catalogs for museums like DIA and the Walker Art Center. Her current research projects address the Web3 rhetoric of decentralization, for which she received the prestigious Arts Writers Grant from the Andy Warhol Foundation and the relationship between technology and the body, informed by her experience of disability. She completed several degrees in art history, including a Bachelor's of Arts from Harvard and PhD from Columbia. My other guest is co-curator of this exhibit, Paul Van Oos. Paul is a professor of art and founding director of Coles Center for Biological Art at the University of Buffalo. A renowned media artist, his honors include 2006 Creative Capital Grant and the 2019 Golden Nika at Pre-Arts Electronica. Since the 1990s, his projects have highlighted the social consequences of new technologies. His most recent works include genetic experiments that examine his own Jamaican-American parentage to undermine scientific constructions of race. Paul completed his Bachelor's of Fine Arts at the University of Buffalo and his Master's of Fine Arts at Carnegie Mellon University. Paul and Tina come to us today from Buffalo after breathlessly returning from the Beale Center opening last Saturday. Welcome to both of you to Ask a Leader. Thank you so much, Claudia, for having us. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be back. Yeah, thank you. And congratulations on putting together, presenting to us at the Beale Center Difference Machines Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art, a multi-layered dialogue a veritable retrospective to current works exhibited at 17 international artists, the earliest work being really big deals in the art tech intersection world. It's complicated, it's demanding, and that's the point. So while people listen to my guest speaking, it's best that you think about lining up your visit here between now and April 29th where it is installed, the intersectionality of this exhibition is kind of like a five corner streets, a lot of traffic and directions in time and space. 
So I just want everybody's permission, including my esteemed guest, my resorting to some shorthand. I just mean no disrespect. It's intentional in the service of nudging community members to drop in and see for yourselves this. So could you talk about its art presenting how technology shapes, and you can put where the emphasis is for you. It, it sorts identity, it sorts race, it sorts gender, and even commerce. So perhaps you could sort of put the weight of which of those elements that you're factoring, you're considering in this really important exhibition. That's a great question. There is a wonderful uh, description in today's Washington Post. There's a new uh, article. It's dramatically titled that Biden might lower the amount of percentage of white people in America. So it's got this very dramatic title. But really, it's an article about changing categories in the census. And the census has always been such a huge issue for how we think of our differences and what differences mean, if they're biological, if they're social, what they mean in terms of having political voice and uh, agency. And I love this sentence that they use. They say, federal race and ethnicity standards are inherently complex because they seek to capture dynamic and fluid socio-political constructs. I really like this idea of the dynamic and fluid socio-political constructs, because that's very much what we're also examining in this exhibition. You know, these socio-political constructs, we're looking at these differences, we're looking at the ways in which these machines of difference, these ways in which not only computers and algorithms, but also how laws and other sort of systematic processes create reify, affirm, as well as undermine differences and, and how various artists have sought to both uh, sort of draw attention to those differences and also question these differences. And, and that's what the exhibition is, is looking at too. And it's looking at it very much in the context of this, like of technologies and, and that technologies of, if we think about the words of like someone like Stuart Hall, technologies, especially biometric technologies, facial recognition, et cetera, have always been kind of tested out, you know, in the colonies and on, um, you know, sort of more away from, you might say, the first world even, and then kind of, I guess, domesticated in ways in which we don't really even sometimes understand the full politics of, of their creation. So these are the kind of questions that we're looking at. <laughs> Sorry for the long answer. No, that's to give a tee up what people are in for when they enter that veal space, that maroon cube. Tina, I know you have very specific, distinct sort of uh, a response to that sort of global question I put out there. Yeah, to, just to piggyback on what Paul was saying, I mean, he already gestured um, to this in his answer that as a society, we um, are all marked by difference, right? Differences in, in particularly in our bodies that, you know, uh, how we present ourselves to the world um, in terms of race, gender, um, ability, uh, also sexuality, nationality. And the, one of the things that is now shaping how these identities manifest is actually digital technology. So to sort of make that concrete, if you go onto a social media platform like Instagram, you can use a hashtag like Black Lives Matter or Trans Day of Visibility in order to make a post that signals that you identify as part of a community or that you at least want to promote the, vis the visibility of a community. And so at this point, you know, especially as we all 
get so accustomed to leading online digital lives. We are posting our selfies. We're posting photos of ourselves to the internet. We are sharing our social networks on the internet. We're letting corporations like Facebook know who our family members are and who we went to college with. We are sharing our innermost private thoughts. We're leaving digital traces of where we go um, when we you know, tag in at a restaurant or at a movie theater. And so what we're helping build are giant corporate and government databases that essentially um, are, are digital doubles, right? That we all have these kind of data avatars that exist out there now that create a picture of who we are, including, you know, these kinds of social markers of difference. So it's about how we manifest our, our identity in the world, but also how our identity is manifest online. And so the exhibition really wants to invite people to consider, well, what is happening now to identity? And, you know, or what are the ways that we can use these technologies in really productive ways? Or as Paul said, you know, how might we actually resist some of the more harmful ways that these digital technologies are surveying our identities or, or tracking them or even shaping them? So um, it's really important as we have this larger conversation about the role of digital technology in our lives to understand that artists have always had a lot to say about this, um, that artists have been experimenting with computers since the 1960s. Um, so digital art is not new. In fact, it's half a century old. And that especially since the 1990s, there have been a lot of artists who have been pushing back about this idea that was very utopian um, in the 1990s that you know, oh, cyberspace, the internet, now we say the metaverse are places where we leave our identities behind, right? That you can just like hop online and, you know, the, the famous New Yorker cartoon, like nobody knows you're a dog, that you go online and you can be anybody you want. And, but since the 1990s, there are a lot of artists using digital tools, using computers, using websites, you know, making software programs, et cetera, who have really questioned this idea and said, well, what if that's not the case, right? What if, in fact, we bring our identities with us? And in what ways might that be really good and exciting? And I'm thinking in particular of the artist Skawanati, who's one of the artists in the show, um, who's an Indigenous Canadian artist um, based in Montreal, who actually back, you know, in the, the late 90s and early 2000s was making spaces for Indigenous artists in virtual worlds like Second Life, right? So that's a sort of a positive example of bringing your identity online and basically saying, well, our lands were colonized, but now we Indigenous people can colonize cyberspace and we can create a space for ourselves on the internet. Um, and so she started a thing called Cyber Pow Wow and also founded ABTEC, which stands for Aboriginal Territories um, in Cyberspace. And so that's a sort of a positive example of how we might bring our identities online um, rather than just sort of erase them or leave them behind. But then there's also this question of how are these, um, you know, especially with social media now, like how are our identities sort of being tracked in really nefarious ways? And so facial recognition technology is one that is increasingly coming under scrutiny and actually has been banned in a number of places. The show also has other examples, though, of works of art that are a little more skeptical about technology or that explore the way that these technologies can be used not by communities, but against communities. Um, and one of those I'm thinking of is Zach Blass, who is a queer artist who has done a lot of work with facial recognition technology and the work in the show is about the way that facial recognition technology that the people who are developing it 
have put forward these ideas that we can use facial recognition not only to identify individuals in a crowd, for example, but actually to categorize people according to identity. And so there have even been papers that have been published asserting that certain researchers claim they can use facial recognition technology to identify which men are gay. And so this is incredibly controversial and, and problematic because it basically relies on, you know, ideas going back to, you know, 19th century phrenology and you know, all the way up through the Holocaust that you can tell somebody's identity or sexual orientation just by looking at them. And so Zach Glass's whole project is really about connecting the dots and helping us understand how some of these ideas about facial recognition and the way that facial recognition is being marketed and promoted, you know, rely on these really, you know, problematic ideas about the relationship between our bodies and our identities. One of the things that, I mean, there's a lot of artists, you know, working and sort of working against uh, surveillance technologies, but there's a really interesting little quote from one of the artists in the show, Raphael Azama Hammer, when he was asked, you know, is it okay for artists to be using facial recognition technologies and machine vision? I mean, isn't this such a problematic technology? And Raphael said, in fact, artists should probably be the only ones allowed <laughs> to use this technology. Yeah, he said facial recognition should be illegal, except for artists. <laughs> oh, thank you. For those of you who just joined us, my guests are Tina Rivers-Ryan, curator at Buffalo AKG Art Museum, formerly known as the Albright Knox Art Gallery, and Paul Venus, artist and professor of art and founding director of the Coalesce Center for Biological Art at the University of Buffalo. They're co-curators of the exhibit currently running at UCI's Beale Center, the exhibition called Difference Machines, Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art. And it's now open through April 29th. And again, advising everybody, you can tell by how the co-curators are speaking to this exhibit, the expansive themes that ample time is advised and ample numbers of visits fully advised as well. So, and I really appreciate how you're threading so many themes together so we can talk about this efficiency and the subversity of how tech racializes data versus, you know, the analog sorts of approaches. So you've already talked about that and you give all the patrons coming a user guide and in there you describe algorithms and I just want to just expand. I mean, I think, and Tina sort of already expanded what the broader construct of algorithm is. And I think we all the patrons bring to this exhibit the algorithms of the history that we've been taught. So I think, are you conscious of all of that besides the algorithms that are in the more recent code being written? I mean, yes. I mean, we think of algorithms. I mean, not not only as things that that occur on computer, but things that uh, op operate in the culture at large. Some writers, like uh, Wendy Chung, for instance, has seen race as a technology and racializing as an algorithm because the incredible kind of you know, if we look at the effect that creations such as race and, and algorithms and systems based around ideas of race. If you think about the incredible way in which they've transformed the colonial economies, they are perhaps the kind of most dramatic machines of the post-Renaissance era. So we're looking at algorithms in an expansive way and in a way which is sometimes um, extremely playful um, and, and sometimes incredibly dark. Where the, the whole 
the title of the show, Difference Machines, is riffing off um, Charles Babbage's, uh, you know, the, the 1820s English inventor's difference engine, which has been, been considered the, the first computer, even though it was originally an analog device. Uh, and we riff off that partially to kind of also to historicize the machine. So, so this is not simply a kind of comment on sort of the last 15 minutes. This is a conversation on, on the sort, sort of this whole kind of, you can see it as an enlightenment project or, or post-Renaissance project of kind of defining and creating these kind of social algorithms. Charles Babbage's uh, difference engine was more like, you might say, more like a, a calculator in, in a sense, but we're thinking of difference machines. Again, we, cha we changed that title directly to kind of make that notion of the machine much broader, uh, encompassing computers, but also encompassing systems and encompassing algorithms in general. So that's, that's, I guess, the kind of what we hope the title also evokes or somehow um, encompasses. I think understanding the, the history of the intertwining of computation and, and identity is really, really important. To go back to Paul's comment earlier about the census and how the census you know, is one of the main engines for tracking difference, we might say, uh, one of the main machines for tracking difference. Actually, if you look at the history of computers, in part, computers were developed, like one of the first use cases for computer technology was to maintain tables of data for life insurance companies and for the U.S. Census Bureau. So actually, along with sort of like the military uses of computers. So World War II is often cited as a major sort of impetus for the development of digital computers. But let's say the first databases, like the first really large scale databases and the first application of computers for you know filing away and creating what we now think of as like big data was really for life insurance and for the Census Bureau. So what I'm trying to say is that computers from the very beginning have not only been killing machines in the sense of military technology, they've also been machines for tracking people and for identifying categories of difference and filing people away in this way into their respective sort of identities. And as Paul said, there's been a lot of recent scholarship that I think has done a lot of work to really push forward this idea that technology is not neutral. This is one of the common sort of refrains because there is this idea that we associate <laughs> with not only 1990s, you know, cyber techno utopianism, but even today, there's a lot of people who think that technology is neutral, that code is neutral, that there is a kind of objectivity to the way that computers work. And, you know, this exhibition really focuses on how computers can be applied in ways that are actually really political. But there is, is scholarship that has pointed out that even the way that computers are built is political. You know, one example of this that, you know, can be quite concrete is that coding languages rely on English, right? So they are already not neutral in the sense that they already are tied to very specific cultural frameworks. They already sort of assume that, you know, English is or should be the dominant language. Um, another example of this is that for a long time, computer technology used the term master and slave to describe different hard drives, for example, um, that, you know, one would be the master and then you would copy uh, information over to the slave. And so there's actually been a recent push led by professional associations of people who work in computers to revisit that language and to understand how even the practice of computer science, right, is relying on these ideas that 
are very much about difference, creating difference, um, even in ways that sort of evoke or have a connotation that involves racism. Riffing on your, your comment about the sort of terminology used for, in your case, in, as you mentioned, a master slave, I, I had a friend in computer science at Carnegie Mellon in the early 90s, and she said, you know, I, I was having a tough time figuring out how to um, end the program that I was working on. I was just learning, I think she was talking about Unix or a programming language in, in the Unix environment, and she said, I couldn't figure out how to get out of the program. And she said, you know, it, it took me, you know, quite a while in being told that, oh, in fact, the command to get out is kill, <laughs> which was very much a kind of a, really shows the, the, the military beginnings of, of that whole Unix environment. The law school is so intentional and great seminars, and they, or maybe it's some other kinds of sessions, that even pre-computer, but highly computational methods were used in slave sort of uh, accounting. So it, I mean, it goes back for centuries. So I don't know if that's something you, you two talk about it on some level, but do you consider that already? Because Tina was going about to insurance companies, very sophisticated accounting systems that it anticipated computers. Yes, absolutely. That they were, I mean, you know, Paul has said that, I mean, he, he invoked earlier the concept of the Enlightenment. So really, you know, the development of the Enlightenment in 17th century Europe, you know, was very much part and parcel with the colonial project, with the expansion of empire around the world by Western Europe. And of course, that you know, is completely dependent upon the slave trade and um, the development of plantation-based economies. And so all of that project in the Enlightenment and colonialism required the development, basically, of enormous uh, systems of record keeping um, to manage empire. That there is no empire without databases, basically. And we also write in our essay for the show about the concept of the encyclopedia. That you know, the the concept of the encyclopedia is usually held forth as a, a sort of paragon of Enlightenment thinking, but the will to sort of classify the world to sort of write it all down, it, it, again, historically, it is it is part of this same moment, right? Where part of what you're classifying and writing down is also the knowledge that you're acquiring about other cultures and other places and, you know, flora and fauna. And part of that is, you know, because you are putting people on ships and sailing them around the world with guns and germs. Um, and you're going to exploit natural resources and human resources. And so, um, you know, human capital. So yeah, it's all sort of part of the same the same thing. That's super well put. I, I, was, I was going to add one little sidebar onto that. If we think about the, some of the predecessors of vision technologies to visually recognize, I mean, think about the kind of uh, the birth of things like fingerprinting. Fingerprinting was born in the 1870s, basically, in colonial India, because the British colonial officers couldn't really recognize any of the, their subjects, right? Um, and so a lot of these technologies of, of recognition and, and biometric technologies to keep track of people really come out of that era, that these technologies that they could have been invented a long time before, except there was no need because people lived in, you know, lived in smaller areas and they weren't necessarily you know, colonizing out so much. But, but a lot of these technologies, like fingerprinting, were, came out of, out of that colonial context and they were brought back into England by none other than the father of eugenics, Francis Galton. So biometrics and eugenics, keeping track 
they all kind of find the sort of similar kind of connection places in the colonial and the race project. One of the markers of a great work of art is that it doesn't, you don't fully exhaust it on first viewing, right? Um, and so I just want to underscore that, you know, these works are all very sort of heady, you know, works that have a lot to say about technology, but they're also artworks that open up to a lot of different ideas and interpretations. And we usually, when we think about digital art or look at digital art in the world of contemporary art, at least, we tend to fixate on the technology and how the artists are using the technology, but we kind of forget that it's also art. It's also artworks and you can have an aesthetic experience. And so that was something that was a really important thing for Paul and I in curating the show as well, right? Is to really make sure that there were a variety of experiences, a variety of emotional tones. Some of the works are sad. Some of the works are angry. Some of the works are sort of like um, just very fluid and pleasurable and beautiful. Like there's, you know, the, the full variety of art is on display here. Um, and the digital art is not just limited to one mode or one, you know, um, one conversation. You know, Lod, both of you, the, uh, another art form is how you've curated all of these 17 collectives and individuals artwork inside the Beale Center, which, as you alluded to, is much smaller than the Buffalo venue. And so kudos to you for this meeting the challenge of putting it in a remarkable sort of mini gallery, major open gallery presentation here, installation of this. So congratulations on doing all of that. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and and um, and to meet you at the opening also. And um, I guess Tina's going to be back and to give a curious talk in a couple of weeks. So um, I will be back in town on February 17th. Friday, February 17th at 11 a.m., I will be giving a curator's tour. And unfortunately, Paul's not able to join me, but I will be channeling him, doing my very best, uh, and, and giving a walkthrough of the exhibition and, and focusing more closely on the works. Um, so, yeah, so if anybody is interested in coming and seeing the show, that's as good a time as any. I'll be there and I'll be very happy to answer questions and to you know speak about some of our favorite works. So, yeah, please, please, please come join. Say hi. Absolutely. Thank you for your time, Tina and Paul. You've challenged me and I hope others who are going to grace the Beale Center this winter and this spring quarters. My guests were Tina Rivers-Ryan, curator and co-curator Paul Venus at the Beale Center, Difference, Machines, Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art running through April 29th. Thanks so much, both of you. You're welcome. Thank you. An additional segment of this interview is available on askaleader.com.